0: We're launching a brand new newsletter 11fs unfiltered is a fortnightly installment of hard-hitting opinions on all things financial services every fortnight a brutally honest no holds barred take on a hand-picked topic from one of our experts will make its way to your inbox to hear from some of the brightest minds at 11fs and join the conversation head to bit.ly forward slash unfiltered newsletter now
1: 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you a busy week for Marcus on both sides of the Atlantic. Tide expands into India as UBS bets big on Paytm, and Jamie Dimon is a very scared of fintech. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 496 of Fintech Insider. I'm David Brier, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host for today, the one and only Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate?
2: Yeah I'm good thank you David.
1: You sound in a a very good mood today like uh, you're all chipper and stuff you had a good good week in lockdown eh?
2: It's a it's a combination of things so firstly my grandma's just got a COVID vaccine so that's awesome and secondly I broke early and I've already bought myself some mini eggs even though it's only January but um, they've got all the Easter products in the shops already and they're like my favourite thing in the world so I think the combo of those two has put me in a good place
1: chocolate and vaccines you're uh, you're a very odd person to buy Christmas gifts for but uh, but yeah but that's that's good uh, how has grandma Moody uh, got on with the jab is it uh, was she sort of in the queue
2: she's good she had seven kids like nothing nothing bothers her anymore so Fine.
1: That's good. Hardened, hardened, uh, uh, keep calm and carry on type vibe. I like that. All right, guys, as of course, and as always, uh, we're going to be joined, albeit remotely these days, by some super duper awesome guests. And making a welcome return, we have Oliver Prill, the CEO of Tide. Welcome back, Oliver. How are you doing?
3: Yeah, great to be back. Doing very well. uh, Reflecting on almost a year of COVID, but I'm sure we're going to come to that. Scary,
1: isn't it? Like time flies when you're not doing much in your house, doesn't it? But uh, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely be touching on that as uh, as we go down, I'm I sure. I think
3: this will go down as one of the biggest discontinuities, by the way. Anyway, we'll, we'll probably at some stage return to that. But I think with hindsight, we'll look very differently at this this period.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure. Hindsight is always a lovely thing, isn't it? Uh, and making his Fintech Insider debut, we have Tosin Ababiaka, who is an early stage investor at Octopus Ventures. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing
4: well. I'm, I'm similarly reflecting on COVID, but I think I've been doing that for about 11 months now, and I'm kind of tired of reflecting. <laughs> I kind of want to just jump into the post-COVID world.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's lovely to reflect on it when it's buggered off, isn't it? And we can get on with our lives. But, uh, but sadly, we're still in it. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll reflect on it later anyway. But can you tell us a little bit more about Octopus for anybody who doesn't know? Of course. So Octopus is ac to series. Be primarily
4: um, early stage fund. We invest in you know pioneers that are creating new innovations and what we call um, basically market creators within the futures of money, health, deep tech, and consumer. And so businesses in those spaces, early stage businesses, we get really excited about investing. And in. I I spend more of my time in the future of money team, and so I look at fintech, insurtech regtech, everything around
1: that space more so than anything else. Very good. Well, there's lots of fun and interesting things happening in that space right now. So you must be a a pretty busy man. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm busy. You're busy. We're all busy in our homes. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. All right. Let's get on with the show. We've got a a huge range of international stories to get through, so we better probably pick up the pace. All right. First up, we have a story that was covered in various different guises. Uh, Marquetta covered it over on Alt 5 and Extra uh, because it's been a pretty busy week for Goldman. Um, The Marcus offer... Um, around savings has been extended to give a checking account. They're doing this with Marketa in the US while hunting for acquisitions for opportunities uh, for various different acquisitions in the UK. So, Goldman have signed up to card issuing platform Marketa to help drive its first digital checking account for its US Markers customers. Marketa will be providing uh, an open APIs and webhooks, as well as developer experience to GS to build these accounts. These are due to be delivered in late 2021. Meanwhile, if that wasn't enough, then in the UK, Goldman is now looking to make acquisitions to strengthen Marcus. It's also been said that whatever deal Goldman was looking at to make would not involve branches because of increased digital activity during the pandemic. Since launching in the UK 2018, Marcus has welcomed over 500,000 UK customers who have deposited more than $21 in its savings accounts, uh, in their final announcement for this week GS has also agreed a partnership with Mastercard and GM General Motors for a co-branded rewards-based credit cards so i mean Goldman have been on a bit of a tear on this one but maybe starting on the on the first part of this the the announcement and the partnership with Marqueta, we're actually lucky enough to talk to Vidya Peters the CMO of Marketta to hear a little bit more about that so let's hear from her now
5: Marquetta is thrilled to announce that we have been chosen by Goldman Sachs to power Marcus, its global digital bank built for digitally savvy customers. Our modern card issuing platform powers innovation for some of the innovative brands that you already use and love. For example, we've helped Square make Cash App, one of the most widely used digital banking products in America, and supported companies like DoorDash and Affirm grow from commerce disruptors into major public market forces. Goldman Sachs saw Marketa's modern card issuing platform as the best way to bring its vision to life. It will leverage Marketo's open APIs and webhooks, as well as our cutting edge developer experience to power a truly modern and personalized banking experience. Alongside our partnership with JP Morgan, which we announced just last year, Marketo now partners with two of the five largest banks in the United States. To see major legacy institutions like these, see our track record helping trailblazing brands deliver new cards uh, to market and trust that we can deliver for them at massive scale is a strong validation of our technology. And we couldn't be more excited to be partnering with Goldman Sachs and Marcus.
1: Very good. I mean, big week for Goldman Sachs, Kate, like uh, all around these guys. I mean, since all of the investment in the Marcus platform and moving that forwards and acquiring a bunch I mean they they just seem to be really amping up the uh, the level of intensity what, what do you think to this one
2: yeah they're really uh, easing themselves back in after the Christmas break aren't they so you no know, busy a busy week I mean it, the, the Marquetta partnership makes a lot of sense you know I think Goldman actually invested in Marquetta's sort of a couple of years ago so they've obviously been following them and their growth over the last few years and Marquetta have obviously um rolled out in quite a few different markets that have been on a bit of a roll. It's interesting, I think, to hear in the clip you know, that Marquette are now talking about this balance between their, their bigger institutional level clients and those smaller fintechs that they've kind of helped grow. So it's a really interesting balance to see how they they juggle the two.
1: What, what do you guys think, uh, Oliver? Um, Goldman Sachs going from strength to strength. Is this, uh, is this the big incumbent organization sort of really getting innovation and, and sort of fighting back a little bit with fintech?
3: Yeah, I think this is the this is the interesting thing. As Marketa is doing well. I mean, they are a fantastic company, and you know that they're doing. They were selected. Probably didn't come as much of a surprise. I think the real the real th- takeaway, David, at least mine is is the one around Goldman, and you know where is Marcus heading? And I think it raises all sorts of interesting questions. Right? And what does it mean, especially in consumer banking, to be a challenger when suddenly you know the Marcus and maybe JP Morgan at some stage is coming in. How does that affect with some of the movements that big tech is doing? And, and as far as tide is concerned, that's one of the reasons why we're staying well away from consumer, right? Uh, that in consumer, you have very, very different dynamics to small business banking. And you have some extraordinary dynamics. Going. I, don't, I think the jury is out where this whole thing will be heading you know uh, who will win uh, but it's very clear that Goldman is determined to make quite a push in on
1: I mean when you've got um, such a gigantic balance sheet and you're looking for interesting things to do with it then I mean Goldman are in such a interesting space aren't they to to make multiple bets in this space I mean what what about that second part of this story I mean where uh, you know Goldman are, are looking to make UK acquisitions you know where and and I guess they're not wanting to um really sort of uh, play, you know, rumour mill too much. But people have been sort of putting two and two together here with the departure of Tom Blomfield at Monzo. Uh, you know, is there an angle here? I can't see Revolut selling. I can't see Starling with Anne, uh, you know, publicly saying that is not her end game right now. That would only really leave Monzo as the 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 one that somebody would look, be looking to acquire. And with, you know, Goldman Sachs's balance sheet is that out of the question?
2: Do you think, Kate? Uh, I hadn't actually thought about it that way until you said it. But yeah, now now you kind of put it that way. Um, yeah, I can I can see it making sense. I was thinking, you know, when when they were saying that they wanted to make an acquisition in the UK, you were sort of thinking, well, is that going to be in the savings space? Because it sounds like they've already kind of hit the hit the maximum in terms of what they can take on from their customers in terms of ring fencing commitments. So yeah, you sort of wondered where they were going to go next. But given that they've said that their intention is to build the leading digital consumer bank. Obviously, you know, I think we'll come on to it later in the show, but Monzo are really leading the charge in terms of consumer experience at the moment and delivering that digitally. So, yeah, again, I don't want to ruin them either, but, um, yeah, I can I can see that making sense.
1: Mm. Uh, what do you think, Tosin? Do you think this is a, a potential you know, opportunity there? Because it, I mean, it feels to me like, um, I guess maybe thinking of this from an investor side of things, you know, I suspect the Monzo... Uh, Board members and investors have been thinking much longer term than this. But hey, if Goldman Sachs comes along with a big old bag of money, then uh, who are you to stand in the way of progress, I guess, right? Yeah, it's a really interesting proposition because I, when I think about this, if I was a Monzo
4: board member, I'm taking the long term view, right? I'm saying we provide, we, we either build or we bolt on you know, upselling products, you know, additional sort of value creating products for our customers. And if a Goldman comes in and basically sweeps us up, we A, don't have to do that work per se, but we don't end up being that bank that we realize ourselves to be like and building it ourselves, you know on our own too. So so I'm sort of mixed if I'm Monzo looking at this from a Goldman perspective it makes a lot of sense, right? They have stood up quite well a savings you know proposition the checking aspect would be you know the multi suite solution that they probably would want to provide to the customer now um, and they have all of those you know much larger sort of value and margin generating um, products that they could also sort of bolt on and so Monzo becomes what it wants to be in a day effectively um, so that's an interesting proposition on both ends I think Goldman probably would be in a better and more sweeter sort of like view of this than say a Monzo. But if they marry, then I think it's going to be a pretty happy marriage, I'd say.
1: Yeah, potentially. I mean, it could be. I mean, I feel like uh, I'm going to get carried away on this one. So before I get too carried away on on what could and, and how it could happen, I think I guess time will sort of tell on this. But we'll we'll definitely kind of come back to the the Monzo bit in a in a second. All right, we be, we better move on because I think we could we could sort of bask in the glory of uh, Goldman Sachs's investment potential for the rest of the hour. But we probably should move on because some other stuff has happened. So uh, moving on to our next story. So there was a story in Finextra. Uh, which was super, super interesting, tied to launch in India. Now, only if we had somebody... On the show this week, who can actually talk about that really effectively? Um, I'm going to cover a couple of bits on this, Oliver, and then I'm just going to cut to you because um, you're way tighter on this than, than I am. So, uh, Tide is embarking on its international expansion, beginning with a limited test launch in India in the first quarter of 2021. The business will uh, will be led by a newly appointed CEO, formerly local payments processor for PayU. Uh, India has 63 million SMEs, so is considering uh, considered a ripe testing environment. Tide already operates a technology center in Hyderabad uh, with a team approaching 100 people. India is becoming a hugely popular market for companies to expand to for foreign investment. This week was also announced that UBS is in talks to invest 400 million in Paytm. Um, Oliver, take it, take it away. Like, Give us a bit of a background on I mean, strategically going from the UK to India. Um, you know, I know some uh, people are sort of expanding geographically in local territories. But what, what made you decide to, to go straight to, uh, I mean, such a huge geography and so far away?
3: Yeah, exactly. So um, <clears throat> maybe just say why now, right? So I think the one thing you skipped, which you are really, really proud of, that we actually hit or just about to hit 300,000 members, so 340,000 uh, SME current accounts, and that's 5% market share in the UK, right? So that really, if you look at it, uh, together with Starling, we are now the number one challenger in the UK, right? Only the big five banks have um, as many small business customers. Um, and that's really the why, why we're looking at it now, right? We want to, always wanted to have a strong home market, make sure we are on the right track. We've still got tons to do here, but we feel now is the time to start looking for. So actually, when the first thing, David, we, the way we looked at it is, we're doing two things, right? We're internationalizing the platform as well as finding a, local, you know, a, a really attractive market to enter and then localize it. And so our strategy is something that we call internally one plus one plus N. So, home market, take one other market to really internationalize the platform. And localize it to that geography, and then look at others. So don't expect us to go out and immediately put flags everywhere. Now, why India? We are in small business. We only do small business. We're completely focused on small business. Seven hundred million, we estimated small businesses worldwide. India, almost ten percent, archetypical entrepreneurial country. Couple of things that people may not know: of the sixty-three, about thirty million are formalized, right? So they do banking. Highly digital country in India. Uh, Geo has completely. Uh, skip the game there in terms of putting smartphones literally in almost everyone's hands so it's a highly digital country it's uh, the government through the india stack has done uh, an enormous amount so it's it's a very large SME market 10% if you want to be a global business banking platform which is what our aspiration is you can't get past india and then as you say we know india quite well we have a um, you know one of our three development centers is in india with almost uh, you know 100 engineers um, Gujot, who uh, we've been able to attract as our local India CEO, comes who I know very well from the past, uh, comes from PayU, the number one uh, um, PSP in India. So we also got a lot of we have a lot of local knowledge that gave us a lot of comfort about it. So we're really, really excited. Don't expect us to immediately do move massive moves. And I know, David, you, have, you, you all know about this. We're all about MVPs, gradually build out, test and learn as you go along, You know, rather than the old school thing that's go in with one big bang. So expect us to roll out uh, gradually and make sure we have the, the right um, you know the, the the right approach. But we're really really excited about this.
1: Well, that's great. I mean, having perfected what you've done for the UK market, and like you say, you've got the product to a, a level where it's solving multiple problems for your consumers in the UK. Scale is then always the thing, isn't it? And. Uh, uh, there ain't no scale like India. Like it's a. I, I used to work for Infosys. I spent a lot of time over in uh, Bangalore, and uh, you know the the entrepreneurial spirit in the Indian market is huge. So you know the the type of customers that you're aiming at for Tide, uh, it is a it is a really good fit. It on first on first glance, it feels like a a big leap from the UK to India. But as you say, from a a fit for the product that you've got and the type of customer that you're going after, it's uh—it's an absolute perfect fit. So and
3: Absolutely. And, you know, for us, it's really about large, because we're a horizontal platform, right? So for us to make the thing work, we're interested in large geographies, uh, you know, and that is a lot more important than maybe the adjacency game, that if you are very front-end focused, you know, consumer brand, that maybe more for you. But but in, in small business, you're completely right. 70% of the functionality we have uh, is transferable in our estimate. And so uh, you're completely right. The enormous economies of scale uh, to be leveraged.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, I guess um, some people in the market might expect you to uh, expand out to meet bigger, almost corporate banking but actually, I really like the fact that what you've done is you've gone, look we're smashing it in one particular uh, customer segment. Now, how do we find more of those customers across the globe um, and that that for me is when you've made good investments in technology, good investments in the the product and the understanding it's finding customers that look like these customers, and you know why not start with a gigantic geo when you do it as well
3: and you're so right, right, and I know you guys have uh, had various uh, you know with metal and others sort of supported that. The biggest mistake in SME is to think it, they're all the same and that mid-sized companies are the same as micro and small businesses. I mean, that's like one oh one error and anyone that's really worked in the sector knows that. So, yeah, I'm sure there are interesting mid-sized market models in the UK, but they're not for Tide, right? I mean, for us, we're really in the micro, uh, small business segment serving you know, m- you know, on a very large scale. Entrepreneurs and their trusted lieutenants to you know, make finance and admin easier. So I will stick very much to that.
2: I guess um, the thing I'd love to get your, your take on, Oliver, when I've done all sorts of work, like looking at the SME segment in the past, the area where you know, FinTech, such of Tide, have been able to make life so much easier is that like, account creation, onboarding process. You know, actually, what are those barriers to actually getting into an account? So I, I'd love to kind of get your take on your approach or your plan for that kind of in the Indian market. I mean, purely anecdotally, I've heard from Friends, that some of those kind of plugins and connections into like government systems, for example, for authentication might not be quite the same. So I'd love to get your take on that. And how you yeah, they're not to the same,
3: but in many ways, the India stack makes things easier, right? So I, I think it's probably too detailed to go in here. But the gov- Indian government has done, which, by the way, we would recommend the UK government as part. And I know there's a fintech review going on. So one of the things we've been pushing on is. The government, just like the government, should build roads. The government needs to put certain, make certain things available. Right? That, uh, in India, that's called the India stack. So the Indian government has done a lot about that. Similar to the UK, that, mid, that smaller micro segment is very underserved. And there are real trends why these businesses want to formalize. Right? They, they want to have access to credit in the digital world. Effect of uh, you know post COVID, you need to do you know digital payments for which you need to be formalized. So there's a massive push to that. So you can, you're both on the supply and on the demand side. You have uh, you know uh, you know uh, the same sort of dynamics in a slightly different twist coming together i mean.
1: it's interesting i mean um tossing from your perspective in terms of the i mean from an investor's perspective you're always looking at a uh if somebody can take a you know a tam and a tom to extremes here and actually if you if you can go from a, a small geo to one that you can identify similar patterns of, of customers at, but that dramatically exp, exp, uh, expands your addressable market then i mean that's a that's a pretty exciting place to be Yeah, it really is. And I
4: think what's so interesting about this is in some ways what Oliver is doing or what Tide is doing is like it's an infrastructure play of sorts. Um, And what I mean by that is that the SME landscape in India is vast, as you know, as we've mentioned, as Oliver mentioned, right? And there's so many SMEs, many of which are not part of sort of the digital fintech economy don't have access to the means by which they can get digital credit solutions, et cetera, et cetera. If you bank them, if you create a digital presence for a lot of these players, that is injecting them into an ecosystem. That is lowering the cac, quote unquote, for fintechs that will eventually come and sell to them in a variety of ways, right? And so that's one thing that makes investors really excited about India is that there is this en masse digitization of what has been an analog or offline category of customer. That is the SME. And again, to Oliver's point, SMEs vary in size and profile and complexity, etc. cetera. So you don't want to pay a broad brushstroke, but that's what gets investors really excited about this space. And you've seen players like you know, the Sequoia's and Excel's have planted flags there for a while, right? And have been, in some many ways, reaping the benefits of having an increasingly sophisticated sense of the Indian environment and have actually acquired Indian VC firms. And brought local staff on hand to be able to think more critically and deeply because ultimately you win this space because you have depth of knowledge of the. Actual context, and not just a single context. Because again, we keep talking about India as if India is just you know Birmingham or a tiny city, right, or something. I mean, no disrespect. I come from like a tiny city outside of Texas, Katy. So if anyone's heard of that, <laughs> props to you. But India is a massive; it's a subcontinent, and so there are even very distinct regional you know contexts within India that need to be understood. You need to build solutions that actually speak to the SMEs there. And then you can have license to grow from one to the next, right? So it's a regional play even within the country that investors, companies like Tide, etc., have to think about.
1: Yeah, and it, and it is a, an economy that's coming alive as well because I think there there was a period of time where India was most famous internationally for you know the the emphases, the wit pros, the the big uh, the big sort of outsourcing setups, and actually what it created was a uh, the fuel of Incredibly talented technology people who are starting up amazing startups that are flourishing now. So, uh, the you know the time for that, like say that that sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem that's kicking off in India in such a major way um so i completely agree with you uh by the way i have heard of that as well i spent a lot of time in houston so uh, oh, sadly enough sad, sadly <laughs> enough I, I, I know i know where you're from but, i owe uh, you something from, from you <laughs> <to actually laughs> identify no, that <laughs> i think there's a there's a t-shirt that needs to be bought but uh, all right uh man, no congratulations again oliver we'll definitely be talking about this more on the show but on that point we're going to have to take a bit of a break and hear from our sponsors
0: This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech. Digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech.
1: All right, guys, we're we're back for the second half now. Uh, there was a story that I think dominated a lot of uh, probably social media this week as well. Was uh, This is a story that uh, Steve O'Hare covered on TechCrunch. Monzo founder Tom Blomfold is departing the Challenge Bank and says he struggled during this pandemic period. So Tom says it's time for him to hand over the baton. He has held the CEO role until May last year when he assumed the title of president and resigns from the board at that point as well. He reveals that he's been unhappy during the last couple of years as CEO when the company moved from being a scrappy startup, as it was said in the article, um, but also that the pandemic and subsequent lockdown has really exacerbated pressures placed on his own mental health and well being. Uh, his president title was intended as a way to provide the time and space for him to get well and really figure out what his longer term strategy would be. Um, but Blomfield describes his resignation as a Monzo employee as a bittersweet, praising the Monzo team, who he says have done phenomenally well over the last year or so in really difficult circumstances. Um, Kate, what do you think on this one? It's um, it's difficult. I think a lot of people are reading so much into this, um, but what do you think? And then I'll give my opinion later on.
2: Yeah, I suppose. Um, I yeah, don't want to get so, like, overly attached to it, but I, I think the word bittersweet is kind of is kind of right for how I feel about it as so well. Obviously, it's great that you know as an individual, you know, Tom's made a decision that's right for him, and it's really refreshing to hear you know a, a senior leader of a, a major. A successful startup just to be able to talk openly about the the burden of success and the toll that that can take. So that's refreshing. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, you kind of really you're sort of sad. Obviously, Monzo feels so deeply associated with him, um, and I guess that's always the now. It's a case of waiting to see like how they transition into life post post Tom Blomfield. I mean, I'd, I'd love to get Toshin's perspective. You obviously hear the story about how investors go after founder led businesses and kind of how does a business retain that same sense of self and culture kind of if if the people who started it leave so yeah from a cultural point of view it'd be interesting to see what happens
4: yeah yeah i i i also think about that quite a bit and and it's sad. it is sad indeed but but it's i my hope and i imagine this is indeed the case that the board has been in conversation with Tom for quite some time, has thought deeply about this, has thought about a secession approach. And as I mean, and there is a culture that's permeated the organization that is not dependent on a single individual, right? Um, Cause that ultimately is when you build a business, when it goes from one person to multiple people, you are increasingly letting go of control of the culture as like the head. Um, and you have to, at a certain point scaling and is not just about scaling the product or scaling sort of the outcome of the product, but it's also about scaling the culture um, at, at large. And so kudos, you know, for Tom being able to sort of raise his hands. Kudos for the, the, the group around the table, whether it be the board or the management team for being able to identify this and perhaps build a strategy that stretches far beyond Tom. But now it is incumbent on the individuals beyond Tom to think critically about how to continue what Monzo has done well.
1: It is it is difficult. And I, and I, I completely agree with, with, with what you're saying. I mean, o- Oliver, like as a CEO of a challenger bank, I don't think enough, uh, being a CEO is a very lonely job. I don't think people talk about that enough because actually the buck stops with you. The everything fits around what you're doing. You know, if things are going great, then it's everybody else. If you, things are going badly, it's you. So, I, I mean, how how do you think that will have affected this decision? Because um, it is quite a lonely role, isn't it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, first of all, you know, I don't want to read into Tom's motives and so on. The only thing I would maybe start out and saying is. I have really high respect that he's always spoke very openly right about you know mental health and you know that sort of which I think is a real real strength and secondly you know in all of this we should always remember you know some of the legacy he leaves behind which to me is that he's built one of the very few true brands in financial services right um with Monzo you know we could probably completely sidetrack the conversation what is a brand but To me, Bonzo is one of the very few that in financial services, And so that's maybe to start off to answer your question. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it can be. I think you can do certain things. So, you know, in the end, you're the CEO and in part, that's your job. Right. Uh, But there is another, there are various ways to mitigate around it. So one is, I think you can build a strong team of executives. So that's, for example, how I do it. You know, I do have a very, very trusted relationship. We spend a lot of time to make sure that's not political. Everyone works together and, you know, we can share openly perspectives and share the the weight and the pressures that, you know, we all are under from time to time. Uh, And I think a good leader, by the way, also means when there are successes that you share that with the team rather than, you know, self-acclaim that. So I think it goes both ways. I think that's one thing. The other thing that sort of I read through a little bit in there, but maybe I'm reading too much. Is you know, we are all so busy. And well, we talk about work-life balance and those no, in no disrespect to investors, but investors will always tell you, take the time you want, blah, blah, blah. In the end, you you know, you know, being the CEO means a lot of time commitment to the company. And so the way I look at it is um, you know, choose the stage of what you do. Almost your work has to be part of your, you know, your enjoyment, your entertainment, your life. And if it becomes painful then you probably shouldn't. And that's where I think is the greatest strength from what I read what Tom said. He no longer had fun in it. And that's probably the time when I also would move on from time. If, I, if I'm tired, if I no longer enjoyed it, it doesn't really matter what compensation, what upside is there. I would probably no longer do it because I spend so much time and I have to spend so much time on it um, uh, because so many things are going on. Um, uh, uh, you know, it has to be part of what I enjoy. Right, And I think if that stops, it is time to move on. And I think that's what I read here. And I think it's a great strength of character and, and, and personal maturity to, to take that step, you know, when, when, when that, that insight arises. And by the way, we have that very often in the company as well. When we scale someone that had a job, you know, the company had just moved on. It scaled past them. They enjoyed what I call the kitchen table, right, where you could sit around with you, knew everyone. But I don't mean this condescendingly. I'm just it's the stage of company. Um, and the company moves on, and then sometimes it's the right thing to say. This is no longer for me. And, you know, these people should leave with pride, and they should be recognised for what they've done, rather than seen as someone that didn't make it or something like that. It's just different people enjoy different things, and we work in too intensive a world um, that it's uh, not just—it's just not worth sticking around if it's no longer.
1: Yeah, I, re- I really do believe in that. I think the if you don't enjoy. The journey of the thing that you're doing, then you the the result is never going to be big enough in terms of where you really sort of get to. So, if Tom, I mean, and actually, I mean, his experience with GoCardless before uh, before Monzo as well, if he loves that first, you know, three years, a blank sheet of paper, making something from nothing. And getting it to a really great stage, it's a great level of self-awareness to be able to go. This is what I'm awesome at. This is what I think other people are better at. And you know, TS coming into uh, to Monzo, huge amount of experience at that scale, it's huge amount of uh, dealing with that extra level of complexity and increased scrutiny from a regulatory perspective. So I think it's going to it's it's the right thing to do. But it's it's rare to see somebody be able to be that self-aware. I guess.
4: Yeah, and I think the one thing that's really important that um, that. To some extent, determines how this is taken by the public or by us sitting around a table is the performance of the business at the point at which the person makes the departure. And I'll make an analogy that might seem out on left field, but it actually isn't. So, similarly, in this week, there's a lot of conversation about a basketball player called Kyrie Irving who plays for the Brooklyn Nets who decided just after, you know, for a few weeks he didn't want to play. He wanted to take some time off. And yesterday mentioned it was for mental health reasons. Now, people, Nets fans, the NBA at large, his team, would have completely, I mean, for lack of a better way, flogged him and forced him to get back onto the team. However, in the same week, they acquired arguably the biggest player you could think of acquiring in the NBA at this point. There's lots of buzz around the team. It seems really exciting, and everyone's excited about it. And in some way, everyone doesn't pay as much attention to the fact that Kyrie is taking time off for his mental health. Um, now, if we were talking about the bottom-seeded team or he was the only cog on the team, or the only player on the team needed to actually make this thing work, we would have a completely different narrative, would have a completely different set of pressures around him, and the public would have a certain backlash against this. That would be even worse than what they have at present. So how Monzo is doing in context at the point at which these happen, also, whether for better or worse, whether the, you know we don't like it or don't, plays a role in how we interpret this kind of news. And I think it's worth mentioning.
1: No, I, I completely agree. And, and Monzo, uh, to that point, I mean, they they're, um, they haven't been doing great in this period uh, in the same heights that they sort of had before. So I think people can conflate those things down to and, and there's I mean, there's been plenty of people on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter this week, definitely sort of. Uh, you know conflating events and sort of putting you know threes and threes and threes together on on those things I'm liking you a lot by the way you brought up basketball as well it's my other thing so we're we're, on to a good thing Uh, one more and we're going to be like uh, we're going to be best friends at this stage I mean I I, uh, I have
4: the American accent I got to bring the American like flair to some of the answers I
1: can't leave you all hanging (laughs) (laughs) but but it's um but it it, it is interesting like if they're uh I I think with the team that they put in place the board appointments that they put in place I mean is this really just uh, not, not for, um, not not just about Monzo, but a comparator across the piece. Actually, we've seen Revolut make some really senior banking announcements in terms of their appointments. Uh, Oliver, I mean your your uh, your appointment at Tides. Is this is this actually fintechs growing up to a point where actually we've got people who are not that scrappy startup, but this is big business now. These are big businesses who have decent, you know, as you say, Oliver, your market share in the UK is really significant. So uh, I think this is businesses as a whole sort of growing up. And I mean that as no disservice to Tom, I actually mean it as a real, uh, you know, going from zero to one is really, really hard. But going one from one to 10 is is a different skill set and a very difficult thing to do.
3: Yeah, it's a, it may be a different skill set. It's also different different types of characters and so on. But some people do make it through. I think just uh, I just really want to dispel the notion, right? And I do read these sort of cancel culture type people, you know, that on LinkedIn make all sorts of comments. Um, I think, you know, this is a scenario where Tom, at least the way we understand it, decided for mental health that it was not for him. Not whether he could not do it. Right, and I think the, the uh, I think this is a very important to differentiate. I mean, I don't have any inside knowledge, so I can't say. But I think one needs to be very, very careful, right, about to say why do people change, right? And both a scenario, maybe a tie dye, you know, it's well known. George Bevers was the founder of that. He decided to move on because he, in a very similar sense to Tom, said he enjoys, you know, doing the early startup right? He doesn't enjoy scaling businesses and he found something that is a real, you know, had the opportunity to scale. And I'm really grateful to be, you know, to have that, uh, you know, being able to take that opportunity. I just think this sort of natural pattern, David, I just would be very careful, right? That sort of, you know, founders cannot scale, you need to replace the management team. I mean, I always have this, and this is, for example, where I immediately block it with investors saying, look, so-and-so is there, but you need to think at time X, you know, whether that person can be replaced. I say, well, Let's give the person the chance to scale right before we actually say uh, just because you've seen it as an investor in company X, Y, Z. So I'm, I'm not a great fan of these standard patterns, but I think we do recognize it does, it does take different, different skill sets and different mindsets. And therefore, a certain proportion of founders will move along. Think in the US, by the way, you can give counter examples, right? Jack Dorsey, if you want, you know, Stripe, if you look at them. Uh, Very different examples where people scale Uh, Facebook maybe at a stage and you have models like Sandberg coming in, you know, as a a CEO. So I think there's a variety of models. And I like what Torsten was saying in the beginning. It's really for the board uh, to come in and sort of have a sensible discussion of how does the entire executive team look? And the answer probably is not one fits all. It depends a little bit on people's preferences, skill sets and the industry they're in.
1: I completely agree. I mean, the other and, uh, uh, producer, Laura, is going to be saying, move on. Like there's like a bunch of other stories. But I think this is a really interesting point because it, it the the startup scale up culture and everything that goes around it. There's so many different companies that go under these different strains and stresses. I mean, the other the other lens to look at this one from if I'm sitting in Tom's shoes right now is, uh, I mean, you've had mainstream media sort of peering into your dirty laundry with Anne Bowden's book for the last nine months or so. Like that can't have helped somebody's mental health bit picking up the the telegraph or the Times or the Guardian and and having people sort of sifting through your 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 bins, as it were. So I mean it's it's really difficult, isn't it? And and actually I, I wonder how much ramifications something like that has had on the the strains and the stresses of uh, of people's mental health it's it's one thing for somebody to sort of chip off on twitter but for somebody to write an entire book that's about uh positioning you as the bad guy that can only have had a negative effect on on him so i mean i, I think this one's gonna run and run i you know we wish tom all the best you know go cardless to Monzo, like whatever the guy does next is is definitely going to be successful in terms of the, the setup around it. Um, we'll reach out and, and get him on and see if we can, we can sort of talk about this in the way that he has, has always talked to us before. Uh, and let's see what he has to say. All right. Moving on, uh, the next story that we have is over in the Financial Times. So this is Grab Financial Services arm raises $300 million. So the Financial Services unit of Southeast Asian ride hailing and food delivery firm Grab has raised more than $300 million from their investors in South Korea. Uh, Grab said in a statement on Thursday, uh, the first external funding specifically for its financial services arm. So Grab has said that it's cash injection, followed by a 40% year-on-year rise in revenue for 2020. Grab has rapidly developed uh, since its inception as a taxi booking app and now looking to evolve into a all-purpose offering that gives a, a wide range of services. The funding will be used to expand Grab's financial services offering and to a more affordable, convenient, and transparent level of financial solutions. Uh, Kate, what do you think on this one? It's interesting. Everything that comes sort of out of Asia is like it does, it's like a Swiss army knife on steroids, right? <laughs> it's the the sort of mother app of all mother apps. And and Grab, you know, starting in that sort of Uber um, transportation side has rapidly pivoted that into uh, really using that really big community and distribution to all sorts of different benefits. So, what do you think?
2: Yeah, it's um, it's great to see them being able to get the raise specifically for the financial part of the business. I think you know, my understanding is that it's probably mainly going to be channeled into the the new digital bank in Singapore. So they kind of got that that license approval for the the new digital licenses. I think towards the tail end of. Of last year, so it's exciting to see them grow not just in terms of you know, the, the sectors and spaces that they reach into, but also you know continue to grow across different markets in in that part of the world. So super ambitious company. You know we've we've had some interactions with them. They're super smart, super switched on, um, and I think. Yeah, as you say, it's a totally different proposition in, in Asia in terms of consumers' willingness to create hubs for their for their financial lives to kind of see the benefits of the connections between your money and your food and your, your transport. Um, we haven't quite got there in in Western markets yet. You know, maybe that's maybe that's where Goldman's hoping to get to longer term, we'll find out. But um, yeah, it's, it's exciting.
1: It does seem with uh, I mean with the rise of sort of bass plays. Like more broadly, more people getting into financial services, though that are not really financial services players, is is kind of playing out across the globe, isn't it? I mean, I, I even just this year, I've been approached by a number of car manufacturers, or you know, anybody who has a really significant community that actually can pivot that into the benefit around financial services. So, I mean, I mean, Oliver, like uh, the partnership potential for for having great. Rails from a financial services perspective into non financial services players that that seems really significant. I mean, I, I don't want you to expose your strategy live on air or anything, but like it feels like that for me, partnerships in that space seem like a huge opportunity.
3: Yeah, so I think here comes our thesis, right? So financial services do not exist in isolation, right? They're always there for a purpose, maybe with the exception of pensions and so on, which has a huge time lag before you spend it. In general, financial services are here now and they're linked to something that is non-financial services. So in consumer, we call this a type, by the way, connectivity chains. So our thesis is in consumer, these connectivity chains run very much into the world of the, uh, you know, big tech or the ride service. Right? I have my Google Maps. I'm in the store. I need to pay with Google Pay. Right. That's a connectivity chain that goes through that natural link or, you know, pay now, pay uh, buy now, pay later. You know, uh, I'm in the e-commerce store. I want to pay, but right? it's always linked to real life event. In small business, uh, these if these connectivity chains tend to run around financial admin tools. I write an in, you know I write an invoice. I need to factor the invoice. I need to pay the invoice. I need to you know payroll the same thing. And that's why Tides thesis, which actually hits it very very hard, is we are focusing on these connectivities in small businesses and solving for the connectivity which is runs around finance and admin in small business. We strongly believe in consumer uh, that it is always linked to real life events, these connectivity chains. And therefore we actually think, I think when we come later to the quote, I bite my tongue until you say that. If you are in consumer banking, I think your biggest threat doesn't come from other fintechs. It actually comes from uh, people that control these other components of the connectivity chain. So Google controlling Google Maps right? The right sharing app, especially in an environment where wallets and other things are not there. Uh, you know, sometimes it's called embedded finance. Um, I think that is something that is huge, will be hugely prevalent. And it means as a strategy in consumer, in my mind, the sort of play of a embedded finance provider, a Klarna that provides financial services to be embedded in, right? Or banking as a service provider. I think those are... Uh, People that will benefit from it. If you are a customer-facing consumer fintech, I think it is probably worth, ha- you know, reflecting how your connectivity chains, right? How you will survive when big tech or, you know, big ride, if that's the equivalent, right, gets into and, and starts leveraging their connectivity chain. And that's why we we just think the dynamics are completely different between small business and consumer. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why we stay well away away from consumer. That these There are players with real competitive advantages
1: in this space. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It becomes that sort of playoff between manufacturing and distribution, doesn't it? Playing out really in financial services. You've got the financial services controlling manufacturing of financial instruments that are heavily regulated and independently regulated. And then you've got other organizations controlling distribution, whether it, like you say, if it's a, I mean, PayPal was successful because it was the button close enough to the checkout uh you know uh klarna has been infinitely successful because of the same thing Uh, and actually that 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 map between distribution against a community that you've got or uh production of the the product to the instrument in itself and i guess in in grab sense what we're seeing them doing is going look we've got loads of customers like how do we monetize backwards from that Um, and and actually almost the the ease uh, you know i say ease uh you know Good people of Grab, if you're listening, I know that's not been easy filling in all of those application forms for the bank in Singapore. Uh, But relatively, terms like actually, we can create banks now easier than we've ever been able to do for the last 300 years. So people, the barriers of entry getting into financial services are really lower than they've ever been. So it's exciting times. I I do, you know, embedded finance, those end-to-end journeys Um, for consumers. This has to be a great thing because. Really, it's just solving problems where you have them, rather than going, I've got a problem, I'm going to go to my bank, I'm going to check my balance, I'm going to check how much I can borrow, I'm going to check my overdraft, and then do a thing. It's actually facilitating those things to really just sort of happen in real time. What do you think, Kate?
2: Yeah, I think when we talked about this quite a lot on the, you know, the Banking as a Service documentary, you know, that kind of uh, longer term vision for, for consumers of having everything connected, I think definitely you can see huge benefits. I feel like it's going to work best in some of these Asian markets potentially where there is this concentration of these existing super apps that you know people already have large parts you know to Oliver's point lots of these connections are already in one place um you know I worry in in other markets you know Google owns part of my life Amazon owns part of my life um you know if they're all trying to create their own hubs does that mean that actually I'm going to end up with my finances sort of concentrated and yet spread? but, so I think it'll be interesting to see play out, but the Asian markets definitely have got a head start. It, it, it is interesting.
1: Payments is always a bit of a forerunner for what happens and plays out in other markets, I, I sort of find totally, and I'm not sure about from your perspective, but contactless in different areas and uh, you know instantaneous of payments. I mean, it, it, it's interesting to see where this ends up playing out in the stack, isn't it? Because ultimately, I think to Kate's point, like Google and Apple – from a operating system of our lives whether it's you know my mac or whether it's my iphone or you know simon's fixated on pixels is all of his google stuff whatever like actually does this start to go from uh players sitting at the top of that stack to fundamentally, like payments and financial services is embedded into operating systems at that stage. So, you know, the, the distribution potential at that point is is massive. That is a very big question. And I've really set you <laughs> up for, like, that is definitely not a yes or no kind of question. But do you think finance starts getting embedded further and further down the stack? Yeah, it's, it's,
4: a, it's a good question. I mean, yeah, as you said, there are multiple ways of answering this. I guess the first thing I'd say is um, some of the points about distribution and access to customers, then giving you license to be able to build, bolt on these financial services is really important. It needs to be, you know, even seconded, third, fourth. It is because of these trusted relationships that the Googles, I mean, for example, to Kate's point, like because she trusts Google to deal with X part of her life and Amazon to deal with Y part of her life that she wouldn't date, then allow them license to deal with her finances, right? And um, the thing is we have... And trusted a variety of different services here, whereas in some markets, I mean, I can speak perhaps more about the African um, market than I could about the Southeast Asian market, but in that context, there aren't a lot of platforms that you would sort of trust and trust with your financial details. When there's one that you can trust with your, you know, rideshare um, provision or et cetera, right, that gives it license to creep into other aspects of your, in, of your life, including, so your financial services. And payments, of course, is, as you pointed out, David, like it's the first um, it's the it's first application of, of, of financial services that makes sense beyond the provision of a particular service, right? Because you have to pay for the service as a means of getting licensed to use it. Um, so payments does continually seem to be the wedge. It seems yeah. to be the point at which like, you start seeing this like new, everything becoming a fintech um, reality playing out. And the embedded you know, financial services players, the embedded providers, are indeed positioning themselves and you see that in the in the investor interest in the embedded anything space now it is the buzzword of the day for invest early stage investors are like right because you see the potential in the, of these platforms you've seen the amazon's talk at length ad nauseum about potentially becoming banks i mean of course regulation issues aside that would be um, just transformative and and so how then can you empower the other players to run and dash and get there as quickly as they possibly can before and Amazon or Google does it and just completely transforms the the Western context and the idea of super app in the Western context, I think the embedded players are trying to bet on everybody else but the Amazons. While somebody's trying to perhaps arm Amazon, and you see that with like Goldman, for example, working with Apple, et cetera, arm these big tech companies with the ability to also become those super apps. So I think there's a race between big tech and non-big tech in how quickly you can build a super app solution
1: agree. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, personally, I, I think at this stage, I, I trust Amazon with I mean, I'd let them look after my kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I trust them so <laughs> deeply that actually everything is is there in terms of that side of the kids will hit so, that
4: prime button like every single day.
1: You will have just groceries for days if you have that it is okay. sc- <laughs> Scarily, they already are, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but but I think it's I think it's interesting. And, and talking of PayPal, as I as was a second ago, actually, the next story, moving on on to a story that we saw in Finextra. So PayPal has now taken full ownership of Chinese payments company GoPay. So PayPal has taken complete ownership of GoPay, making it the first foreign firm to have 100 percent control of a Chinese platform. So this is really interesting. I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, Chinese uh, companies looking to invest in uh, American organizations uh, and had uh, I mean, this might change. We haven't mentioned it yet. There's been a change of president in America, but with that change of, uh, of president in America, might come a different sort of mentality about that that type of investment. But obviously, clearly, from the other way round, then PayPal, you know, real, uh, you know, true. Uh, American success of the early phase of, of what financial services disruption really was. Um, so GoPay holds a payment business license, meaning that PayPal becomes the first foreign company to enter the Chinese market uh, for about two years after Beijing promised to open up a little bit. So PayPal bought 70% uh, in uh, Gufubao probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, Information Technology Code, which has now become into GoPay in 2019 and has now bought it outright. Um, This is super interesting. That sort of, I mean, PayPal have been an interesting company for a long time, Kate, but Feels like they sort of they sort of moved really corporate, and then have really pushed themselves to kind of break out and be more innovative again. Um, what do you make of this one? Is this a is this a good sort of play from a going from the US to a, a Chinese market?
2: Yeah, I think maybe, maybe even you know just a couple of years ago it was almost a little bit fashionable fintech to sort of mock PayPal a little bit It's sort of a, the old funny duddy that you know had got a bit too stale and had kind of lost lost a bit of its mojo. But yeah, it definitely as you say, seems to have caught back up. And, and when we did our, our study in the U.S., looking at kind of the relationships between SMBs and, and kind of different players in the space, you know, PayPal was huge and you know, it's still kind of having huge relevance for um, U.S. consumers in all sorts of different sectors. So, yeah, I think it's, I'm, I'm mainly interested in this story from the angle we talked about in the previous show, I think the clampdown of the Chinese government on, on Ant Group and Jack Ma and obviously kind of, I'm really interested in the sort of dynamics of this from a political point of view, you know, is it something that, um, the Chinese regulators will allow to flourish. Actually, is it almost kind of now positive for them to have uh, a large American company kind of coming in and disrupting some of these local companies that might have been growing too fast and, and becoming too dominant? So um, I think exciting for PayPal, i will be interested to see how they handle that that Chinese uh, environment, um, especially you know, in that payment space where there are such established local players that have been so successful pending government intervention, I guess.
1: Yeah, it is, it is interesting. I mean, a lot, PayPal doesn't get the props that I think it really, I mean, it, a lot of people forget Elon Musk was like the biggest part of the shareholder when they sold PayPal. Like, um, And I guess back to our point earlier on around something like a Monzo, like PayPal has expanded and expanded and done really well, maintaining its market share and now expanding into other markets. Just when the founders leave to I don't know. Build spaceships to go to Mars like Elon does did. Then it doesn't mean that the organisation is not going to be successful. So there is opportunities for these companies to um, keep growing and growing. You mentioned Jack Ma there, Katie, as well. Uh, we can confirm he has been located, has mm-hmm. made a public appearance. Now uh, he's not disappeared completely off the planet, as uh, further a uh, future uh, was uh, worried about a little bit. But uh, he has been found and seems to be well, which is good.
2: I'm very pleased.
1: Yeah, it's worrying, worrying when a billionaire sort of, you know, real big, important founder just disappears for a couple of months. But I'm sure we'll figure out what happened in that shortly. All right, we're going to have to move on, on I'm afraid, because there's uh, uh, not much time uh, left to to sort of run through a bunch of things. And there's a bunch of other stories that were super, super important this week, but we're not going to get the chance to to cover in, in full. Um, why don't we get into that now then? So Kate, do you want to take the first one of these?
2: Yeah, sure. So first up, um, story from the FCA. So the FCA have published their performance scorecard of comparison metrics for personal current accounts in the UK. So they provide two independent league tables that show customers' Um, Of the 19 largest personal current account providers and how those rank on overall quality of services and online and mobile banking services, the purpose is to make it easier for customers to choose their providers. Coming in at the top on both overall service quality and online mobile banking services are Monzo and Starling, with First Direct, Metro Bank, Nationwide and Barclays just behind. However, sadly, scoring lowest on the overall services category, we have Tesco Bank with RBS, Clydesdale Bank, and TSB also towards the bottom. Tesco Bank also performed the worst in the online and mobile banking services category after TSB, Clydesdale Bank, and the Cooperative Bank. So uh, my research nerd brain absolutely loves these kinds of stories. I had a lot of fun earlier looking at the charts. Um, first off, it's, I suppose it's not really a surprise to me or most people that Monzo and Starling have, have topped the rankings. I think it's actually great that we're now at a stage where you know, in the market where these new banks have a sufficiently large enough customer base that you know they can be represented in these kinds of studies in a way that incumbent banks can't just discard you know there's not enough base size you actually it's you're bringing data to show what i think people in the industry have known for a long time one element that i do find interesting is that the fca continues to split out this overall service metric from the online and mobile banking score um and actually when you look at both sets of results side by side the banks kind of fall out in the exact same order so um Really, to me, that just reinforces that customers are increasingly expecting service to be delivered through online or mobile channels. And having a good branch network or a you know, not especially rubbish telephone offering is not going to save you if your digital offering isn't up to scratch. So congrats to Monzo and Starling. Um, but yeah, TSB in particular, I think. I mean, obviously, Tesco Bank did the worst, but TSB in particular seemed to be consistently low. So they we obviously need to sort themselves out.
1: Yeah, I think it's so interesting this ranking. I mean, First Direct has obviously been the the sort of uh uh bar setter for such a long period of time in the UK market, hasn't it? And has sort of fallen to I feel like we're doing top of the pops here, but fallen to third in the in the charts. Um but I guess the thing when you look at those models, actually if Monzo doubles customers, the operating uh cost of that function doesn't double in the same way as if you've got a predominantly service based on a call center setup. If you double the customer's first to ranked you have to double the call center capability as well. So actually the, the model uh, that we've set up and almost the point that we're at in the development of the, the, you know, the fintech challenges is infinitely more scalable uh, than the the organisations from an incumbent perspective. So, I mean, this in five years is going to be fascinating. If uh, if, like you say, Kate, the uh, the, the graphs aren't uh, giving us um, something interesting to be reading now. All right. Uh, next up, we had a UK government vote down bill to regulate buy now, pay later firms. Uh, although 265 MPs backed the amendment, it was easily defeated as 355 members voted against regulating buy now, pay later under the FCA. According to the research from Credit Karma, a quarter of Brits used buy now, pay later services to fund Christmas shopping, setting up a 2.3 billion bill. The FCA is conducting a review into minor pay later firms, but some MPs worry that the lengthy process could push regulation out by 18 months, leaving consumers drowning in debt during the economic downturn. I mean, this is super interesting. Like, Why was this even something that MPs needed to to vote on, like I, I really think we we need a we need to empower our regulator to make decisions around what is a financial instrument and what is not a financial instrument. Not put it into the hands of people who don't really understand the subject matter in any way. So, I mean, it, it feels like a um, uh, another slap in the face for democracy in a way that doesn't actually serve the people. Um, But hopefully, you know, with the inquiry and everything that the FCA are pushing along, we'll quickly get to a point where actually this is being pulled into line with making sure customers are being treated fairly in the way that every other financial product is as well. Over to you, Kate.
2: Cool. Um, Last up on this short one. So story of it for an extra. Capital One have been hit with a $390 million fine over egregious AML failures. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, have been enforcing. So they've enforced a 390 million civil money penalty on Capital One for engaging what they have described as willful and negligent violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. This relates to the failure to file suspicious activity and currency transaction reports at Capital One's Cheque Cashing Group. The violations occurred from at least 2008 through 2014 and caused millions of dollars in suspicious transactions to go unreported, including proceeds connected to organised crime, tax evasion, fraud and other financial crimes. Capital One acknowledged failing to file suspicious activity reports, even when it had actual knowledge of criminal charges against specific customers. Um, yeah, this really doesn't sound great at all. Uh, Fincent have used some fairly strong language here. I think their director described Capital One as having allowed known criminals to use and abuse our nation's financial system unchecked. Um, you know, they really kind of seem to have failed quite significantly here. You know, I've spent a lot of time recently looking at, at the crypto space and, and things, and obviously, you know, people talk a lot about concerns about financial crime and fraud in that space, but Really, it doesn't feel like the traditional banking system is really up to speed here either. Um, and particularly, this particular complaint seems to be focused around a particular cash or check cashing team in New York and New Jersey. So, you know, it's not even new processes or, or new technology that's kind of caught them out here. It's just a, a process that's not up to scratch. So, these types of investigations always take time to, to surface, but Capital One do say that they've now closed down the network concern and they've taken steps to fix its reporting systems over the last few years. Um, but I guess you know we had a lot of uh, stories last year, obviously, that the FinCEN files that got leaked last year caused a, a huge stir in the industry. You know, it really feels like AML is kind of the next industry that needs minor, sorry, not minor, major uh, uh, inspiration and sort of creative thinking to just make it more fit for purpose in the modern age.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, the you know FinCent files, like people didn't know what that was like a couple of years ago. Now they do, uh, and actually uh, the the things that we sort of saw through that was predominantly people with the wrong incentives doing things that did what they had to do, but not really the right thing. In the same way as we've seen mis-selling happen with PPI, it's always the incentives that we put on people that make people do stupid things. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll sort of see uh, see some sense kind of come to this one, but. Uh, Uh, It's a difficult thing to regulate for everything, isn't it? All right, guys. uh, The And finally, story this week. We have a story that was over on CNBC, which is Jamie Dimon says, uh, and if you don't know Jamie Dimon, I don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast, uh, but he is the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, uh, says, and I quote, that banks should be scared shitless about fintech. Uh, So this is JP Morgan Chase, CEO Jamie Diamond, has observed that the new breed of fintech players have grown in users and market value and says that the banks and management teams should be rather worried. I'm gonna go for the second time. During a conference call with analysts, Diamond said that the banks have plenty of resources and lots of people. They just have to get quicker, better, and faster. I, I'm pretty sure that's a Daft Punk song. I'm not going to lie, but uh, we'll, we'll come to that point later on. Uh, Diamond has sent his uh, deputies a list of global competitors, including PayPal, Square, Stripe, Ant Financial, Amazon, Apple and Google. Feels like Jamie Diamond just Googled a list of like big fun tech companies and sent it to his management team. But sure. Uh, the CEO also said that the payment space will be particularly tight, but he is hopeful to win. In fact, he said, I expect to win. So help me God. So that's great. Gods on a particular bank in America's side. It's good to know. Um, I mean, this is super interesting. I mean, Jamie Dimon sort of changed his tune a little bit in recent years. I mean, he's been he's been hot on cryptocurrency for quite a long time, or at least the applications of DLT. Um, but has very much sort of battered away the the sort of small challenges, the small fintech players. Um, I mean, is this is this a sort of a realization that they're now taking it seriously? Uh, and actually, I mean, Tossin, what do you think? Is this is this the industry being big enough to start giving, uh, you know, major banks nightmares now? Yeah, I, I, I mean,
4: to use sort of the phrasing that you used previously, if I don't say yes, then I shouldn't be in this industry because <laughs> it's my business to believe that indeed, sort of fintech is imposing enough to make these banks take notice. And yes, indeed, I think uh, your point really holds that I, I, I've seen Diamond sort of change his narrative quite a bit. Um, Going back to the point about Goldman that we talked talked about at the beginning, Goldman has been, for a while, been pretty acquisitive and has been leading in many ways in acquiring, thinking about, revolutionizing, building out fintech solutions. JPM has in many ways been playing catch-up. Um, and so it, it behooves folks like Jamie Dimon to, to really think critically and really double down. Now, JPMorgan has been investing in a lot of fintech across, you know, from between the us and the uk for quite some time so i don't think jp morgan is completely out of the race entirely or isn't out of the fintech game entirely but i think yes um uh, fintech one is massive two i mean on the crypto point he's been sort of singing a crypto institutionalizing um song for quite some time and we're seeing you know a crypto um uh, I don't know what the right word is now. There's just a thousand and one analogies people make, but we've seen just a really massive explosion of the crypto space and institutionals like gravitating to it. So in some ways, he is—he—he he looks like a soothsayer uh, now on that front. Uh, and I hope he is much the same in this case, because yes, fintech is becoming massive and it is continually becoming important in the, in the agendas of these bin- banks. And you're seeing them acquire all the more to be well, well tools to compete in a digital landscape.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's, it's fascinating to see, isn't it, as that that sort of tune changes slightly. But Oliver, what do you think? Uh, Big banks finally scared of those little fintechs,
3: you know? Yeah, I think the interesting thing, I think, by the way, is the language he's using, right? Because um, for a CEO, but again, he's an American CEO, maybe four years of Trump left uh, a bit of a legacy there. Uh, Leaving that aside, though, what has to say closer to home, you know, we do have indirectly through LPs and, you know, though we don't have any direct banks, banks directly investing in tight because we bar strategic investors, we have indirect investment through SPVs and so on. So we do have exposure. And I would say senior teams at all large banks are very aware of the fintech environment. I, I think it's probably unfair to say that they, you know, they underestimate it or they're trivializing it. What I think is the interesting thing, David, is we haven't really seen big moves right? I think that's, that's the interesting thing. Maybe Marcus, which is the home point, the one that is a real, real scale, but the rest of it hasn't really been transformational. I mean, we've seen bowl, we've seen metal in the UK, mm, you know, you've seen HSBC. Mm. You know, these were things that were sort of launched with a uh, hooray and then, you know, somehow not given the oxygen to sort of, uh, you know, move on. And I think it's an interesting thing where I think I would really take notice is if there's more of a movement. And I think coming back to cycling back to the beginning, whoever they're acquiring in the UK, if it's any of the targets we've been talking about. Now, that would be, I think, a would set off a chain reaction with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, senior teams at, at large financial institutions that they need to follow suit. Um, so I think it's really about when we will see some action. I Let's see where Marcus ends up. But I think we're still a few years away before we see really, really big bets. Um, but but I think the the lip service they've all been carry, you know
1: carrying on. I, I think it's I think it's so interesting that point. And and actually I I wonder I fear people look at you know if, if he's looking at Square and Stripe and Amazon and and going like these guys are being successful. Like how do we emulate that success without sort of doubling and tripling down on the things that have made those organizations successful? Like as anybody listening to this knows, like culture in startups are what is the exponential growth of success in those spaces and actually if you look I mean JP Morgan Chase invested in uh, uh, Finn uh, you know there's there's sort of uh, you know all sorts of rumors about the the startups that they're doing in the uh, the UK to build these things out but Finn really failed because it was too close to JP Morgan Chase's culture that meant it was just a small bank in a big bank and arguably if you look at first direct first direct has been stifled because it's a innovative bank in a much bigger bank and the, the drag, the, the the sort of uh, friction that that brings with, you know, the move fast and make things happen sort of mentality. So it's, it's, it's interesting if, they're, if, if big organizations start latching on to the success that these companies have, I really hope that they focus on why they've been successful and changing the culture of those big organizations, not just going, great, let me do a buy now, pay later thing. Because if you're not, it, it just doesn't work.
3: And I think it's about also relative size, right? So I think one of the reasons is they they fail because, uh, you know, the culture, but the other thing is they're just too trivial to the organization. Now, the interesting thing about Square is JP Morgan is probably one of the few players that could actually buy it, right? Many other banks could be bought by Square, right? Or there would be a merger of equals. I mean, just look at the market capitalization, right? So... I think the problem is often these plays, because they're hedged, are marginal add-ons that make no difference to the bottom line or the financial dynamics or strategic positioning of the, the group overall. And I think the interesting thing is Marcus has been a really sizable play, it's not betting Goldman, but it is a significant bet. And I think only when we come into this territory that a bank, uh, banking group truly takes a big bet. That's what it will get the management, the senior management attention. And maybe, David, to your point, the freedoms to actually then deliver uh, you know if you're marginal play within a big financial institution it's ridiculous.
4: yeah and it's uh, just to quickly piggyback off of Oliver's point for a second if you if mean I think you don't necessarily have to look even within the banking sector you can look at other large financial institutions right I mean this is going to be a we're not going to go into this conversation but with the sort of visa and plaid and the visa plaid sort of potential acquisition it already tells you that these institutions are taking fintech seriously and the size of these potential bets which I mean now we all see that plaid potentially was significantly undervalued the size of these bets are suggesting that this is no longer just a nice to have, it's a must have, right? And so there is movement in the space. And JP, you know, Jamie Diamond doesn't have to look at Goldman, he can just look at Visa and say, Okay, these are credible threats and we need to make moves, you know. And then to the last point about language, I think there's also a transformation. This is a culture thing, too. <laughs> I really like Oliver's point, I think it actually speaks to the culture point, which is that like banks are changing their dressing, changing the way they talk, the way they look, the way they walk because you can't just adopt a fintech wearing a suit and think that it's going to become like, you're going to become Monzo tomorrow. It's not going to happen, right? So you also have to personally and as an organization be need to transform the way you think and you approach the workplace and how you do business. And and I think they're taking notice and Jamie Dimon is doing that. Whether he borrowed that from the 45th president or not, but at, least but at least he's doing something of that.
1: I, I mean, Kay, like... A CEO swearing is not something that's going to be shocking you, right? Uh, Given uh, given the organisation you work in, but um, but I mean, (laughs) what do you what do you think on this? uh, What do you think on this story? I I mean, how do you think this one will play out?
2: Well, yeah, when I when I read when I heard your initial run through in terms of the event, they've sent out a list of must watch companies to their deputies, and it's. PayPal and Square and Google, I think God, it's 2021. Like, How on earth does that need to be a, a memo or an email? Surely it's I mean, probably the companies that you know. Toshan's looking at. They should probably be looking at these lower, like I mean, undiscovered companies. Um, that should be really where they're focusing energies. The, the big players, they should just know straight away. So it's it's pretty bleak if that's true. Um, I'm trying to kind of think it's not true, but it feels pretty bleak.
4: And Kate, they actually yeah. are. Just a quick quick insight. They actually are, right? I mean, these all of these banks have VC arms. Uh, and they're looking to invest in the small players. We're in conversation with all these banks and we're looking to invest in businesses, right? So some part of JP Morgan, some part of Goldman knows about these businesses. Now, does this go all the way to the top? And has it become a strategic priority for the organization as a whole? That's the question. And whether those venture arms and the innovation centers have as much cachet to be part of the conversation about what the strategic vision of
1: JP Morgan for the future is, is still the question to be had. Completely agree with that. Oh, my goodness. That could be a whole nother podcast and a whole nother hour. But unfortunately, we're running out of time. So we'll have to get you guys back all to uh, talk about that at another point. Uh, that does wrap up the show for this week and wrap up the news this week. Thank you so much to our guests. Uh, Oliver, where can people find out a little bit more about you and the good work you're doing at Tide?
3: So at Tide, Tide.co. If about, I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn. So just uh, search me there and that's where you hear. If you'd like my opinions, that's probably where you hear a lot of them. <laughs>
1: Very good. And so, Shane, where can you people find out a little bit more about you and Octopus Ventures?
4: Yeah, at OctopusVentures.com, um, on Twitter as well, and on LinkedIn. I like Oliver. I'm more active on LinkedIn than Twitter, but you know, I, I, I'll read. I might not repost,
1: but I'll read it. All right. Very good. Uh, and uh, Kate, where can people find
2: out a little bit more about you
1: and all the stuff you're up to at 11FS? I'm not sure I'm
2: allowed to post about all this stuff. I'm up to at 11FS. I don't know. I'd get in trouble if I if I did that. But um, yeah, I'm on. I
1: mean, on. Na, Naz is going to get upset if there's NDAs in place. So just, <laughs> yeah. uh, just, uh, just, just in case you're listening to this, Naz, everything's above board. It's all yeah. fine.
2: Um, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. So Kate Moody on LinkedIn and also on Twitter at k8, Moody. So but yeah, always happy to chat about fintech customers, all that jazz.
1: Very good. Uh, as for me, do you know what? Send me an email. I love a good email every so often. So just david at 11fs.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to us uh, on whatever podcast client you do like. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us make this podcast better and also helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you want to make a suggestion, like me talking a little bit less then hit us on email at podcast at 11fs.com thank you very much everybody
2: goodbye